far, nearly 5 million refugees have fled the war in the Ukraine, according to the United Nations High Commission on Refugees. And about one half are women and children. In 2014 and 2015, it was the conflict in Syria that led to a tripling of the refugee population in OECD countries. It went from 2 to nearly 6 million people in just a few months. And many were teenagers and children. We know this because in 2017, 30% of people applying for asylum in OECD countries were under the age of 18. Though shelter, food, and medical care are the first things refugees often need when they get to safety, getting back into school is crucial for children and young people as soon as possible. I'm Clara Young, and I work in the Education Skills Directorate at the OECD. I'm talking to Lucy Serna today, who is an analyst here at the OECD, working on education and refugees. And Vivian Joametz, who is chief expert at the Estonian Ministry of Education Research, specializing in language learning and migration. So thank you for joining me, Vivian and Lucy. Thank you very much. Thank you for this interesting discussion. Now, I'm going to because I, I mentioned this in the introduction, why is it so important to get children and teens back to school as quickly as possible? Um, it's very important to get children um, and youth back into school as soon as possible in order to provide some stability for them, some safe place, but also in order to ensure that their schooling is not interrupted for long, prolonged periods of time. This can create not only gaps in their in their skills, but also the opportunities for them, for these children and youth to um, establish contacts with um, young people in, in schools, to build friendships, to develop a sense of belonging, which is very important for short-term, but also um, long-term integration. And uh, Vivian Yohametz, Estonia has been taking in a lot of refugees and a lot of refugee young people and children. How how is it going? How is it going there right now? Uh, for the time being, I think like most countries that are facing this crisis now, we are moving step by step. The main difficulty, I think, for policymakers is that we can't have any prognosis, not for the uh, short-term period, nor for, for the long-term period. We have no idea how long these people are going to stay in Estonia. They themselves, they can't make any personal plans. And so this is the classical situation of uh, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. This week, we are trying to have some kinds of figures for preparing for the autumn term. And it's very difficult to evaluate whether the young people are staying or, or leaving. As of now, Estonia has received more than 32,000 Ukrainian refugees, and about 34% of them are minors. That means for us under the age of 19. And how many of them have started school now already? For the time being, we have 3,470 children and youngsters who are registered at Estonian Education Information System. This doesn't include the families that have made an application or who are or just looking for a place at a school who haven't decided 
And we also don't have a figure for those children and young people who are continuing to study in uh, Ukrainian schools at the distance. Lucy Cerno, what what's the learning priority for refugee students? What should it be? I mean, the, the learning priority is to make sure that they learn not only the, the language in the host country, but they also continue learning and developing their, their mother tongues, not only because in the case of the Ukraine refugees, many might be going back, but it's also important to keeping their mother tongue and their, their culture for their own personal development and for their identity um, development as well. So language learning is a very important uh, component. Another important point is to enable the refugee students youth to catch up on schooling or to continue schooling, learning the skills and competencies that they need, and also adjusting to a new education systems for those children and youth um, that have started in a new education system in a, in a house country. So it's important for them to concentrate on learning the language of the country that they're now in. And also, and this is quite surprising to me, to continue classes in their own mother tongue and to continue to learn about their own culture. Why is that? It's very important to continue with the mother tongue learning, very important for their identity development and construction, because there are quite often cases where there is kind of tensions between let's say, the old identity or having an identity to, to their own country and their own heritage. And sometimes refugee students neglect it because they want to assimilate and they want to integrate very quickly. But that creates often very, very strong tensions and very strong identity issues, which can then last for, for a very long time. And so it's important to keep developing mother tongue, but also learning about the culture and the, in the history. It's very important for their own heritage and for their own uh, identity. Now, Vivian Yolomets, the education ministry in Estonia, right away hired quite a, a lot of Ukrainians to work in the education system. And I wonder if that has to do with what we just spoke about, the importance of keeping up their own language and their own culture. Yes, certainly. The necessity to employ Ukrainian teachers is manifold. First of all, these people are professional teachers. They come to Estonia and they are in need for employment. We have thousands of children who are in need for teachers. And of course, we don't have a, a pool of uh, Estonian teachers who are just vacant and waiting for hundreds and hundreds or thousands of children arriving in their city. So uh, we actually need these working hands in our schools. So we are very grateful for everyone who has contributed and we see that schools are actively looking for new teachers and they have already employed short-term or permanent contracts have been signed and people are already involved in education either as teachers, assistant teachers or any other jobs at schools. This is important, first of all, to have a sense of community for the Ukrainian children who might feel isolated or already not not only because they don't know the system and they don't know the culture, but also because of the language. For the first a few weeks, maybe they don't speak more than just a few words of Estonian. So they feel at ease when they have an adult person who speaks their language and can assist for smaller or bigger questions, even finding the right room or maybe having a psychological problem they want to discuss, etc. And of course, the issue of keeping, uh, retaining and also developing the mother tongue is 
from the one side a question for these for the uh, national identity or ethnic identity for the children and if we say now um, that they are in our care in Estonia. They are not Estonian children. They are not Estonian citizens. We don't know for how long these children are in our care. We are more or less like custodians for these children. And in an ideal situation, we will give those happy children with a good education back to the Ukrainian country if they wish to leave. But we don't know when this might happen or, or whether it will happen in the near future. So it's evident that they need to learn the language of the country where they are staying right now, because it may be for a few months, maybe for a few, for a few years. So we are constantly looking for this uh, right balance between the proportion of Estonian language, Ukrainian language. We have an, an next, maybe just to to clarify that the, it's easier with younger children because their language learning comes more easily and they don't have so high requirements as to the content of academic subjects like chemistry, history, geography, etc. We are more concerned uh, with teenagers who are 15, 16, because for them the, the pressure of graduating is uh, immediate. They are all either graduating or they plan to graduate next year. And so for them, the, the question of the language of uh, teaching is very important at the present moment. This is something that I wanted to focus on in this podcast is the trickiness of older teens coming into a host country as a refugee. This has been already considerable challenges with especially these um, older teenagers during the, the Syria crisis. Um, now it's going to be another challenge. It's not only because of the language issues and that it's much harder to learn new language. It is also this transition between education into higher education or, or the labor market and the skills that are needed to do that, to graduate, to have the exams at the end of um, compulsory schooling. But it also has to do with the age when in different countries when compulsory schooling ends. So in some countries it ends at age 15 and some at 16. Some countries have extended it and it's now 18. So there have been some provisions of allowing students that are nearing the end of compulsory schooling to help them finish upper secondary education or receive some courses through adult courses so they have the possibility to learn the skills that they might need in order to finish upper secondary education and be able to have the skills to transition then into labor market or higher education. There's also the issues in the previous refugee crisis, but also important for this one is the unaccompanied minors have come without any support from their parents. And often these are the ones that can fall through the cracks um, because they might drop out of school and rather join the labor market in in order to be able to support themselves or support the, their families at home. And so there have been quite a few programs in the last years to especially support these unaccompanied minors and help them to, to finish school, but also have social and emotional also support. And I think this will be also an important group in this crisis where many children have become separated from their parents or their parents that do stay behind. They might be in a very vulnerable position as well. Yeah, according to the UNHRC, only 23% of refugee adolescents are enrolled in secondary school compared to 84% globally. 
Vivian Yonitz, Yonitz, how is Estonia dealing with older refugee students? Yes, I must agree that we are facing exactly the same challenges that Lucy mentioned right now. For the time being, uh, we see the statistics that the teenagers who have entered Estonia and stayed here, only a fifth of them appeared today in our official register for education. And this means we are, have lost uh, the, uh, a large part of uh, older teenagers, and we hope that they are continuing their education in Ukraine uh, via distant learning possibilities. And uh, we also know that this year, as, as they arrived in Estonia, mostly in March and beginning of April, uh, some of them need to graduate, and they graduate from their Ukrainian schools. So in a way, it's logical that they didn't come to Estonian schools because they know that they will get their uh, graduation documents or, or diplomas from the Ukrainian state and not from Estonian schools. And they need to actually uh, uh, follow the requirements of their Ukrainian uh, curriculum. But in autumn, starting with the next academic year, we know uh, that we need to face the challenge of getting teenagers to school, to Estonian schools. And it is also important that they don't stay isolated in their hotels or, or their apartments, that they can socialize, they can participate in sports events, make music, arts events, etc., and also learn the local language. How do you think you can reach out to them? We are working on this right now using the uh, Ukrainian community uh, in Estonia, people who were in Estonia before the crisis and uh, that have... Uh, uh, some We have some Ukrainian societies that uh, we meet regularly and we also go to the housing uh, facilities that the Ukrainians uh, have for the time being. But the, the greater challenge are those families that are staying with families and family or friends because we don't really know who, where they are. We can't really access them and they don't have any places of reunion where we could go and uh, and talk to them or convince them that they should apply for a place uh, at a local school. The other difficulty is that what Lucy also mentioned, that the age of compulsory education in uh, Ukraine is uh, 15, whereas in Estonia, a 15-year-old child is still the, uh, of the age of compulsory education. And so they have arrived in Estonia and they have already graduated from uh, basic school. You mean they've already graduated from basic school in the Ukraine? In Ukraine, or they are graduating right now, but they are 15. And in Estonia, 15-year-olds are still at school for at least one more year. So they, in a way, there is a gap where we say that they have graduated in Ukraine, but they are not yet in the, the same age that the Estonian high school uh, students who enter the fourth grade of uh, education when they are 16. And, so, and on the other hand, the Estonian labor market does not really require those uh, very, very young people who are children legally, and we don't have many job offers for them, and we would really love to see them continuing their education in Estonia. Lucy Serna, do we have any examples of good programs following compulsory education? There are some good examples in um, in Finland, for instance, where they have skill center which helps refugee students or youth, especially, to receive qualifications and um, learn more 
vocational education training skills, um, which then they can employ in the labor market, and it helps them also to transition into the labor market. Um, otherwise, there are a number of countries that are now also facilitating access to higher education for Ukrainian youth and providing places for them. So I think there's lots of mobilization of, of support and of effort. The OECD emphasizes the importance of a holistic environment for refugee students. And we've already touched upon trauma and psychological difficulties for refugees. For example, teachers in Estonia, are have they been trained to deal with the particular psychological uh, situation that refugee students are going through? At the moment, we are working on this. We are developing new training programs for teachers, both Ukrainian teachers and Estonian teachers. In addition to that, we also look for specialists who come from Ukraine who could consult Ukrainian children and families, parents and teachers in the questions of trauma or psychological problems. We have a helpline where uh, there is a Ukrainian-speaking psychologist on the phone, uh, which is anonymous, where children can uh, call, parents can call or teachers can call if they either have a problem or they have um, noticed a child who might be in trouble or, or need psychological assistance. And this helpline was uh, opened because uh, normally we have uh, psychological assistance at schools, but as the Ukrainian children are dispersed all over the country in different schools, we don't have Ukrainian-speaking psychologist in each and every school. And so it's yeah, it's quick and more efficient to have a helpline of a psychological assistance organized centrally. But as we are getting more organized with receiving the pupils and students in Estonia, we also will have more psychological assistance at schools. And so to have it maybe face-to-face and more comfortable at schools and maybe also where they in housing centers. Do we have any professional development programs and training programs in other countries focusing on for teachers dealing with refugee students and the psychological aspect of that, uh, Lucy Serna? There have been guidelines on mental health and psychosocial support in emergency settings that are mental health teachers uh, providing psychosocial support by creating a safe and supportive environment. And it also allows them to, to work with psychologists and to recognize, for instance, the signs of, of trauma and help train teachers to, to support students, but also know when is the time to refer the students to a, to a professional or a psychologist. There is also another example from Australia, where there have been some schools working in Sydney and southern New South Wales that have worked with the Refugee Action Support And that's a program that combines tutoring for new arrivals with student-teacher professional development. And it works very closely with the teachers together, providing them with training and helping them to support, especially um, students who are coming, who have a refugee background. So they help the teachers to develop their pedagogical and also interpersonal skills and working especially with these vulnerable students, how to support them, but also how to teach them skills like literacy and numeracy. So there are some examples, but you know from studies that UNESCO has also looked at that there is very little actually training of psychosocial interventions in the teachers, in the teachers' training. I would maybe add that uh, in order to have 
necessary information reach as many pupils, uh, teachers, and educational professionals at the same time. So the ministry also, with the help of, of professionals, has prepared several guidelines in these issues that are available, that have been sent and that are available permanently on our website where teachers can just read and uh, have links where they can have further information on the issues. And I agree with Lucy that maybe the early noticing is one of the key issues uh, when uh, and in what circumstances a teacher should maybe turn to a professional if he or she notices a child in need. Now, do studies show whether it's better for refugee students to be integrated right away into mainstream classes in the language of the host country? Uh, there is actually not a clear um, findings from, from studies. So there are, there are actually different types of models, whether you first put um, the children into separate classes for one to two years and then help them to develop the language of the host country and other skills and then try to um, mainstream them into into the other classes. There are also studies that show that actually sometimes these children, even after two years, they are not really ready because they have been so separated and they've actually been very isolated often that they might not be even ready to transition and um, it would have been better to try to integrate them much, much earlier. And there are also models of trying to, the children that have some basic, at least, understanding of the language or are younger ones, it's easier to integrate them to start in a mainstream class, but have additional language courses um, on the site or having actually a tutor with them in the class um, that helps to translate them um, and help to make the transition and um, enable them to, to follow the, the instruction that goes on. So, and countries have very different uh, approaches, what they do, whether they put them in separate and then transition them after one to two years. Sometimes it's actually up to four years. They transition them into mainstream classes. There is not really a one model that uh, seems to be particularly effective. The, I think the only clear finding is that it is important if there is separate classes, not to leave the, the children youth in there for too long because they become very isolated. They don't make really the connections with the other children from the host country. And actually, that would allow them to learn the language also much quicker and integrate, but also feel a greater sense of belonging. So I think the combination is, is probably try to mainstream as much as possible with additional support. I would like to add to what Lucy said. There is one thing that has proven very important and even crucial is the psychosocial well-being of a child. If the child is in a very bad place, psychologically, mentally, or, or socially, or isolated, or does not have any contact with family, or, or as other objective or uh, subjective problems, then we see that there is little academic improvement in skills and in language learning. So regardless of the model that, that the country has uh, chosen to use in uh, refugee children education, the psychosocial well-being is a crucial issue in any case. It's important to have a very holistic view and holistic support supporting not only learning needs but also the social and emotional needs of students and also not to forget that the refugee group is um, very heterogeneous. Every individual has very different needs and it, that's also why it's important to have 
for individualized support. And in some countries, there is individual learning plans that are prepared only with the student, the parent, but also the teachers and uh, the school leaders, and they are revisited and um, to enable the, the students to have their kind of their own learning path and also the establish what type of supports they might need because it's often not only about the learning. If you, if you don't have the psychosocial support, the learning won't um, happen either. And the last point perhaps is that it's important to have also cooperation between the different um, services. So not only education, but also, of course, health services, uh, social services, also working with the let's say, municipalities with the schools, with the different communities, because, and of course, also with the parents or families or guardians or whoever's helping, because it's a very much a kind of a joint undertaking, but that crosses, that's not only in education, it goes across quite a few sectors. I think in this crisis where we have very few certain ideas about what is going to happen in a week or in a couple of months, then the flexibility is the key word that we need to be flexible, we need to meet the needs of the children and the parents and see also how Estonian teachers and Estonian schools cope with this uh, influx of uh, new students who have a different language and cultural background. And so all the all the flexible solutions need to be analyzed and maybe there is no one perfect solution even in a small country like Estonia. And so I think the more we have uh, those learning models that the children or families can choose from the better for them and so that they can see that their needs are met, the best we can offer for them in Estonia. Thank you for taking the time to do this podcast, Vivian Joamitz and Lucy Serna. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about the OECD's work in education and skills, find us on Twitter. Our handle is at OECD EDU skills. <laughs>